Welcome to this episode of Let's Chat. I'm your host, Chris Revel, coming from the Cat Cave in Providence, Rhode Island. Fantastic fucking guest today. And I emphasize the fucking, because I, A, I love to swear, and B, because this was a great guest. We have Mark Hershon. Uh Mark is a writer, brand namer, cartoonist, minister, podcaster, screenwriter, uh, just all-around fascinating dude, uh, super nice. If you're a fellow comedy nerd such as myself, this episode is for you. Uh, Mark, God, he talks from his beginning of his career, from working in radio to the jump to like managing comedy clubs in L.A. and Seattle in the 80s. Uh, I believe it's the 80s. I hope I have those time frames right. Um, just what a super nice guy. Uh, if you're familiar with the show, thanks for listening. Come back. Uh, a few weeks back, I was featured on Split Sider's this week in comedy. If you don't know what Split Cider is, it's a comedy blog, and I and I told this to Mark, but um, Split Cider was always the holy grail for reviews for me. That's all I ever wanted from the show is to make it to Split Cider's uh, this week in podcast. It turns out Mark Mark is one of the contributors for that. Uh, I had submitted in the past and never made it on there, understandably. And then when I had the the opportunity to have the uh, incredible Mike Price, who's the co-creator of F is for Family, on, I was like, oh, I got to submit again. And Mark explains why, and he he wrote about it. And that was it was the I remember that moment. I was in my boss, my old boss's office, and I just look at Twitter and saw that I was on Split Cider, and I ran outside to call my parents. I was in my wife, and I was so happy. And then uh, on top of that, that gets on to Huffington Post the next day. So that that was great. It was just, that was everything. Uh, and then Mark was just so gracious with his time. He has a phenomenal podcast that I've been really listening to a ton of um, called Suckatash. Uh, Suckatash, the comedy podcast. Their website is suckatashshow.com. And it's uh, basically, it's clips of different comedy podcasts. So there's not, it's, it's, there's not a lot of great way to find comedy podcasts. Listen to one episode of Sekatash, and you could learn about a bunch of great different podcasts. And they also do some great interview episodes. Uh, Dana Carvey's been on four times because uh, he kind of he talks about his friendship with Dana Carvey for the last thirty five years. And I did my best not to geek out as a Dana Carvey fan. I was just like, uh, uh, keep it under, keep your lids. And he's like, oh, I'm friends with Kevin Pollock. I was like, oh, all right, don't freak out, don't freak out. Uh, but Mark's fascinating uh he just has great stories he gives advice i i still don't quite understand what branding is and he didn't seem to want to talk about it that much either good because i wanted to hear about screenwriting and comedy working at a comedy club and stories about seinfeld uh of course we talk about the flash for some reason and uh god just what a great guy if anyone's on there and you see on twitter there's the hashtag pattern family uh this guy is fucking really helping pattern family out because he is writing for two huge publications about podcasts at my level, and no one I know else, no one else I know is writing this for Split Site or Huffington Post. So, thank you to Mark for coming on the show and just opening up and telling us these phenomenal stories. Uh, please check them out online. You could check them out at suck, uh, there's suckatashshow.com, uh, markhershorn.com. He's on Twitter at hershow. H e r s c h o. Go to quartetbarts.com. All the links you need there are posted in the show notes. And a quick plug for me as well. I am actually a guest on a phenomenal podcast called uh, Poorly Summarized. I really like this podcast. They asked me to come on. Of course, I said yes. Uh, the po- it's the podcast that fills you in on what you missed on social media this week. I 
call it a mix between At Midnight and uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I don't know if anyone else would agree with that. Um, so it's different than this podcast, and we kind of go over some new stuff. We play some games, and um, it's really funny. These dudes are really fucking funny, and they're super nice, and sometime in July or August, they're going to be on this show. As always, find us on CoreTempArts.com. I'm on Twitter at Let's Chat Podcast. I have rambled enough. Uh, if anyone out there is still listening, thank you. Uh, let's get to it. Hi, Brianna. Let's Chat with Revel and Friends is part of Court Parts, a podcast network featuring pop culture, TV, and movie podcasts. Check out our other shows, That Pop This Live, Talking Shondaland, We Got Five, and TV Ate My Brain at CourtAndParts.com. What do you like if you were to like go to like a dinner party or with strangers who aren't part of the comedy world, do you even get into what you do with them? Or do you just kind of brush over that? Well, it's funny. I, I have things I like to talk about, but if I go to a party with my wife, she always wants me to talk about other things that I do. Yeah. Like I, I always like to lead with being a screenwriter and having written several movies for the Hallmark channel. But uh, Great topic. She, it is a great topic, but she thinks that it's even more interesting about the uh, my product naming work that I do and have been doing for 30 years. That confuses the hell out of me, so I'm hoping we can hear learn what that is as well. Sure, absolutely. But I really want to hear about the screenwriting. I think that's uh, that kind of blows. I mean, that's such a tough field. I mean, just to get something made is huge. It is, it is, and I've had a number of stops and starts. Um, had a screenplay developed by Universal in 1983 that I was actually running a comedy club in Seattle, but the headliner we had one week was a friend of mine from. Los Angeles, a comic named Franklin Ajay, who was very hot in the 70s, um, and uh, had a couple of fans and these producers, and we'd come up with a screenplay idea, and they got it set up at Universal, so I flew down. I'm 22 years old. They're paying us money, and of course, it never got made. But uh, I go, this screen selling screenplays is easy. <laughs> <laughs> You were running a see the part I you were running a comedy club at twenty two. I was in Seattle. I was that was after doing five years in radio. <laughs> oh my goodness! I guess we start at the beginning then because this is just too much to hear. It's, it's, <laughs> that's, it's... <laughs> but that's wonderful. So I'm, are you take you're from Seattle? No, 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 not at all. I'm actually from the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh okay, uh, beautiful. Yeah, I've been to San Francisco once. In okay. that area is just. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous area. Yeah, and that's where I both got uh, into the radio and in the comedy business. Um, I was a huge fan when I was a kid of, of radio. There was like a personality-driven radio station here in town. Uh, the station's still here, but it's all just sort of it turned into like a right-wing talker a while back. And now I don't know what they do, but uh, it's a station called KSFO. And they had a bunch of disc jockeys, one of whom was like Jim Lang from the old dating game, was their morning guy. And uh, I used to listen to it when I was in junior high school. And I go, man, I want to work in radio. But I didn't want to j just work in radio. I wanted to work at that station. <laughs> so I was two years into junior college, and I ended up getting a part-time job at that station. Uh, and the guy who hired me, the news director, said, because uh, I'd been going in for like six months straight. Like every two weeks, I'd go in and go, you guys got anything? And they go, no, we have finally I get the call from this news director and he says, I hear you've been coming here bothering people for work. And I said, that's yes. I, you're the only station I want to work for. 
And uh, he said, well, you come in. I'm going to offer you a job you shouldn't take for money you'd be ridiculous to, to actually accept. And I said, okay. So I went in. The first job I got was, uh, or the job he offered me was sit, coming in at 5 o'clock in the morning, sitting in the newsroom and just listening to a police radio, police band radio, and listening for accidents on the highways around San Francisco and the rest of the Bay Area. And then telling, they had an air traffic spotter. But I didn't know that that guy really couldn't see anything from up there. So my job was to find out where the accidents were and then tell him, and then he could go fly around them and report them. <laughs> oh, my God. I never, I, it's all I can think of is uh, Artie, Sky, Artie Pie in the Sky and the Simpsons is a traffic reporter. Right, exactly. I don't, I don't, did that, I don't know. Did we, yeah, so three, um, three and a half hours a day, five o'clock oh. in the morning, and then I would go back to, to junior college after that. And I, make, I was making five fifty an hour. Oh, my God. In, in San Francisco, too. And loving it. I said, I'll do yeah. it. I'll do it. Um, and I just parlayed that into more and more work at the same station. And within about a year and a half or so, I was producing the morning show and they switched formats and ownership, and I ended up the head of, like, they, they started doing talk radio, and nobody else had ever set up interviews there before except me. So all of a sudden, at the age tender age of 20 or 21, I was the executive producer for, like, five or six talk shows. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so what's the jump from that to comedy club? That's That's got to be a good story. They Well, they at the same time that was going on, I was really hooked on the, they had this event in San Francisco that still goes on today called the San Francisco International Stand-Up Comedy Competition. And it was like 40 comics, and they would do a round of preliminary, uh, two rounds of preliminary with 20 comics per round. They would travel comedy clubs around the Bay Area. And each comic would do like five to seven minutes. And the, the top five from each week would go into a, a week of semifinals. And then the last week would be the finals, and they'd have to do 15 to 20 minutes. And the judges were all like uh, newspaper reviewers and things like that. And I just love watching the show. And I somehow ended up falling into the official timer and scorekeeper for that when I was still working at the radio station. For, so okay, for, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for three and a half hours or three and a half weeks a, a summer, I would like be up until like one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. And then I would go and sleep on the floor of my office in the, the station and get up in time to do the morning show <laughs> as the producer. Um, but we had, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the competition, but like people like Robin Williams came in second the first time he did it. I feel like I must've heard, I listened to a lot of a uh, Kevin Pollock's chat show. Who's oh, also a, yeah, a San Francisco guy. So I, I feel like, that must be the thing he's referring to. Yes. The guys I, you said, I was like, I think that's what that is. Yeah, I know Kevin very well, actually. Good oh, friend. oh, I don't know him at all, but he seems like a lovely man from his amazing podcast. And I, his documentary, uh, Misery Loves Comedy, yes. was just, oh, my God. That was just like a dream. Like, I feel like I'm a late comedy come lately. Like, it wasn't until about the podcast boom oh, where yeah. I just yeah. went from, like, really a music snob person or really into that and then transitioned into just obsessing yeah. with podcast yes. and comedy it's oh it's great yeah it's so, a, so what happened was i got into um the comedy scene in san francisco that way by being attached to the comedy competition then when i left the radio station which had like the third change of management since i've been there they said we're going to go back to doing music and i said oh well all right well i don't work in the music library anymore that's kind of where i started but and they said, we're going to lay you off oh <laughs> but you can keep your office until you find another job so I found a job at a little tiny station up in Northern California, uh, just outside Chico. And I go, I want to be on the air. And they said, we're not going to hire you, but look around. 
and a guy that I'd gone to junior college with was the program director of this little dinky station in Paradise, California. And I called him up and he said, yeah, come on up. So I went up and I was the overnight guy for a year. And uh, then I got a job offer to come back for the people that were doing the comedy competition. And, and they opened a comedy club in San Francisco called The Punchline, which is still there today. And uh, I went back and booked that for them for about six months. And um, they own this club in Seattle, the Comedy Underground. And the manager who was up there wanted to wanted to leave his position. And my girlfriend I was living with wanted to leave me. Uh, <laughs> and so I said, well, I'll go to Seattle for six months. And That's I ended so up spending, yeah, I ended up spending two and a half years up there running the comedy club. It was a good comedy scene back then in it Seattle? Was, it was great. It was great. Um, some terrific comics, uh, guys I'm still friends with. They've, they've, you know, they've gone on to LA, a lot of them, and they're touring the country and they're on cruise ships and doing television and stuff like that. And that's where I met, or, or I had already met Franklin Ajay, but that's where he and I had come up with this film concept. And uh, I realized I had to engineer my escape from Seattle to get to Los Angeles and become a hallowed screenwriter. And have you, is it safe to say you never let go of the comedy? Because I know we talked the other night and you were like, were you running a show, I believe you said? Um, I've, yeah, I've kept my, my finger uh, and part of my right leg in comedy for a long time. Um, I've, I've done improv for 30 years. I've taught improv. Um, I've set up improv groups in Seattle um, and uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico and Los Angeles. I used to run a comedy club at the, uh, the improv they used to have out in Santa Monica. Because once I got to L.A., the only people I knew were comedians. So I used to hang out yeah. at the Improv on Melrose literally six nights a week. And I knew everybody there, which was great. And they opened the Santa Monica room. This was like in the late 80s. And uh, the one of the owners, Mark Lanau, approached me and said, um, hey, are you interested in starting up a, a improv group for us out at the, the Santa Monica room? I said, absolutely. So started a room out there. And I've just stayed friends with these comics and stuff. Um, and uh, Dana Carvey, of course, who was in San, started in San Francisco. I've known him for 35 years. I had him on my show on Suck Attack. That was like the first four. one I uh, listened to. Yeah, I've had him on for like four times now. <laughs> I was in like, fact, oh. In fact, I am going to L.A. in a couple of weeks. And uh, he asked me to host his – He's gonna. he's starting a podcast with his two kids. Oh. Thank God. Called the Carvey podcast. And uh, he asked me to be the host for the, the kickoff episode. So on a Saturday, uh, June 11th, I will be hosting his live show at the, uh, the improv, which will be a lot of fun. Oh, that's so great. So when you're in these comedy clubs, uh, when you're running the comedy club in the eighties, I mean, this is, is this comedy boom era? Like who are the guys? Oh, yeah. Out for this oh, era? I mean, this you're will, like, this you're will blow your like, mind. I mean, I'm talking, I went up there, right? I went there in 82 and I left in early 85 and my headliners included Jerry Seinfeld, Paul Reiser, Marsha Warfield, Harry Anderson, um, on and on. I mean, just everybody that you got to know in television came through the doors of the comedy underground and people, comics loved playing Seattle for some reason. I don't know why, but they would just come up there and they just have a great week. Um, and I think it was because they felt like they were like unplugged from everything. They would, some comics went kind of crazy. I had one comic, uh, cause I used to, I, I, my room was in the comedy condo. I had a, I had my own bedroom with a lock on the door cause I didn't want those guys in my bed, but <laughs> yeah, of course. So I would wake <laughs> up and so one morning I wake up, it's like a Saturday morning. We'd had two shows the night before and the headliner was not there. I go, oh, maybe we went out for breakfast. I don't know. And my phone rings and it's him and he says, uh, Mark. I don't know where I am. 
I said, <laughs> I said, what does that mean? He says, I don't know. I just, I woke up. I was with two women in a cabin on a lake and I'm calling you from the dock outside that lake. And I have no idea where I am, but I just hope I can get back in time for the shows tonight. <laughs> wow. And this is pre-cell phone, obviously. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Pre smartphone, so that's actually so that's more of a challenge. Somebody's, like, la- somebody's landline. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, yeah. Figure this out. Yeah, so great, great stories from back then and these guys. Um, and that 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 stood me in good stead. I've got, you know, I started writing for a comedy newspaper when I moved back out of Seattle, back to San Francisco on my way to L.A. And I used to write for this newspaper called uh, Just for Laughs which was published in San Francisco and distributed to every comedy club in America. They would send out a box of 50 newspapers and not charge the clubs anything for them. Oh. And uh, I used to write the articles, uh, so the, the profile pieces, a lot of them. And uh, so they go, yeah, can you get a hold of Jerry Seinfeld and write something? I go, sure, I'll try. And I'd call. And of course, he remembered who I was because he played the club like three times and he was happy to do an interview. So it, it paid off, which was great. What's it like seeing young Seinfeld? I feel like anyone listening, because that's like, I mean, Seinfeld. Very, <laughs> si- very similar. Born, he's a very, guy. very similar to old Seinfeld. Yeah. Uh, well, he had this, he had this amazing technique, which is still has stood him in good stead, which I talked to him at length about, which now I care. I think he coined this phrase. Uh, I may have come up with it or someone else did. I don't remember. It's been so long, but it's um, he writes holographically, which hmm. is he takes a subject matter. Uh, or, you know, a piece of, uh, of just an idea, say it's, you know, his sock in the dryer bit, you know, which is, you know, a thousand years old, but he takes the thing and then he writes from every conceivable angle, looking at that thing from inside, from being the sock to the outside, being the guy that owns the sock to the guy who looks in the window to the other clothes in the dryer. And then he starts paring away the stuff that doesn't work until he's left with this bit. It's kind of like, you know, the way uh, maybe this is giving him too much credit, but it's kind of the way like, you know, Michelangelo used to say that he the, the statue was already in the stone and he yeah. was just exposing it. And that's kind of the way Jerry would kind of write his act. He said, you know, the stuff is in there. I just need to figure out what the best stuff is. No, I, yeah, I agree. That's definitely a fair assessment. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's Seinfeld. And uh, so. And LA, so this is L.A., Seattle. You're in the 80s, man. So like prior Kinnison, is that their era too? My time frame's a little they off. They kind of weren't working the smaller clubs in the road, and Seattle was kind of a smaller market. Um, usually we'd get the headliners in Seattle because they would use the hook of – it was the same people booking that that were booking – uh, the punchline in San Francisco, which was very popular oh, yeah. to play. Yeah. And so they would use the punchline as a hook. Hey, work a week in San Francisco. Uh, you know, we'll let you work a week in San Francisco if you work a week in Seattle. <laughs> I just do the West Coast and that, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So if guys would come out and that, that was in the era. I mean, Carson was still running the Tonight Show and we would book acts that literally would call us from a phone backstage in the green room and say, hey, I'm about to go on the Tonight Show. If I get a plug for the punchline next week, will you book me? And so we'd bump somebody in order to get a plug <laughs> yeah. for, you know, for the from on the Tonight Show. Now, do you think that would happen today? Because do you think the value of late night is what it yeah. was? No, that, like when Carson that, was, he was like the only guy at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's that that market's all gone. I mean, it's just television. And I think it's funny because I think it's partially comedy is partially responsible for its own downfall 
as far as yes. television goes, right? I mean, yeah, it was very exclusive. You could watch The Tonight Show or you could watch one or two obscure things on television or you could go to a comedy club. And that's why there was a comedy club boom. And these these club owners, uh, you know, were having a great time and television started scooping up all these A-list comedians and giving them their own show. Jerry Seinfeld, Roseanne Barr, all these people. And this is my theory, by the way. I, I can't back this up other than having watched it happen. So all these guys go to L.A. to do their TV shows and all the kind of second level comics all bump up to headliner. And they're pretty good. But then the Hollywood people realize the only people that can write for other comedians, at least in this this era, were other comedians. So they start hiring the, you know, that next level of comics to come work for the comedians shows. So Seinfeld had a staff that was a bunch of stand-ups. And all of a sudden, the C-level comics bump up to headliner. Now, these guys, they'll do seven minutes on Carson and have a great set. But when somebody turns up to see them in a nightclub, they go, hold on a second. These, this guy did seven minutes of great material. This other 42 sec minutes is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they just basically kind of hollowed up the market as they went. Because by the early 90s, the whole... Not the whole thing. I mean, it's, you know, and it's it's had a resurgence now, but not the way it used to be. But all those circuits they used to have, those one-nighters throughout the Midwest and stuff, those all fell apart because there, soon there weren't the comics that could back up the billing. You know, people would come out for a night of comedy, and instead it would turn out to be a night of drinking and heckling. Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair point. Because every time I've ever been to, like, I don't really like comedy clubs around where I live, but like I like the small theater place. Oh, sure. Because of that, because it's like people go there to drink, and it's a bar that happens. There's like bars that happen to have comedy, and then there's like a place that actually understands and respects the craft. Yeah, and I mean Carvey loves playing like a an 800 to 1,000 seat theater. I've been on with him on several of those gigs out here, and um, he just loves it. He says the audience is attentive; they're there to see the show. Um, and you could, they could, you and the comedian can kind of veer off and try something new, and it's like, or people are more patient; they kind of get it a little bit. Like it doesn't have, and you know, you want the big closer, but you, you yeah. kind of allow a little more. Well, he I mean, had, he had, a, he has a great technique sometimes when he does these kind of shows because I, I used to write with him when he, he's kind of living in L.A. now because he's got all these projects going on. His two kids are getting into comedy and stuff, but he was living here in Northern California. We worked on a number of things together. We have a couple of screenplays that'll probably never see the light of day. <laughs> um, but I used to help him with his material a little bit. We, you know, we travel around and try stuff out. And when he was doing these theater shows, he would go out and do like a 20 minute Q and a at the end of the show. So he'd finish his act. Oh, then he'd come, come back out like an encore and he'd do like a 20 minute Q and a, but cleverly his Q and a would always lead him to this kind of half baked material that we'd kind of come up with, but he hadn't finished. And he would just kind of seed it into his responses to the Q&A and then try and flesh some of it out as he went. So these things always turned into a massive writing session for him and the audience was none the wiser. Oh, and that, I mean, as a fan, I would just pay money just to watch that alone would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, his, him and uh, Kevin Palk's chat show is one of my all time favorite podcast episodes. It's fucking, oh man, he's such a, uh, no need to compliment him. Everyone knows he's <laughs> very, very funny. <laughs> uh, that, so, and you, so have you written for a lot of comedians? Like, I know that's, is it, do you, did you do like ghostwriting or are you more like? Not a lot, your... not a lot. Um, I, I did, when I was living in LA, I wrote with Bill Maher uh, quite a bit um, just cause he would hang out at the improv and then we'd go back to his house and just write bang stuff out, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I was one of the, you know, many 
faxing in contributors to Jay Leno on the Tonight Show and got a few things on there. Um, but mainly, I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a fan of wanting to do stand-up myself. I would do a set occasionally just to kind of get up and kind of, I, cause I did improv. So it's just, it's, it's kind of the same sort of muscle, except for the fact you don't have any prepared material, but it's, it's the same sort of confidence on stage. Uh, particularly if, if you're doing improv by yourself, which is kind of what Robin Williams did. You know, he had a lot of prepared material, but he would sort of flow effortlessly from bit to bit. And he wasn't ever doing improv with anybody else. It was just improv with himself. And that's kind of what it's like. I mean, I, at one point when I was working on something with Dana, he was opening or he was playing at the Mirage Hotel in Vegas. And he said, well, why don't you come with me? Cause we can keep working on this script. I go, okay. So he gets me you know, a plane ticket in a hotel room and we're, we get to the Mirage and the Mirage says, well, where's your opening act? He goes, well, you guys were supposed to hire me once. No, no, no. Your contract said you were bringing somebody in. And he looks at me and says, well, you want to do it? I said, <laughs> yeah, okay. How much time do I have to do? He says, oh, five minutes, seven minutes, whatever. I go, all right. So we just kind of wrote some hacky material that afternoon. And, you know, that evening I was getting up in front of 1,300 people at this sold out show at the Mirage. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that, and I, that's like most performers nightmare. Yeah. And I, I did three shows that weekend. It was fantastic. And so you're, are you doing all of this simultaneously with your other projects, with your uh, branding and the branding, marketing? Yeah. I mean, the branding work has, has been fairly steady, whether it was working for a company or doing individual, you know, sort of um, individual consultation, which I also do. Um, but like right now I'm currently working for an international uh, branding company. Um, and so the improv, I actually teach improv at work um, after hours to people there that want to learn how to do it. Cause I think it, it lends talent to being able to, uh, I, I'm sort of working on this. I say sort of, cause I'm doing it so slowly, but I'm working on this book about improv and business. And one of the things that I teach the class on improv and business that I occasionally do is that every meeting is a performance, whether it's one-on-one to a guy across a desk or in front of a room full of other people, it's always a performance and you need to know how to gauge yourself and run that performance and keep that whole, I don't know how much, have, do you have any improv experience, Chris? Uh, no, just a fan. Um, first of all, as I always tell my students, you're lying right now okay. because everyone does improv because every conversation we have, including the one we're doing right now, nothing's been written down as far as I know between us. That nothing actually yeah, you're right so we're improvising this entire conversation <laughs> right, right now um so everything's a performance and so by teaching it at work these people are learning how to really kind of bring that skill set into doing a presentation for a client or working with one of their work groups trying to do some come up with a design or a brand name or anything else and it becomes uh the yes and philosophy of improv which is you simply build on whatever somebody else says as opposed to debating about it or denying it or anything else um, sort of helps to bring everything forward. And I talked a little bit about this in uh, the business book I co-wrote called I Hate People that uh, came out in 2009 um, and was really about how to deal with kind of idiots and assholes at work. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should uh, I'd have to get that for sure now. It's, I think that's something we all have to deal with. It's Yeah, it's, it's you can still get it on Amazon. Uh so are you you must always be like the coolest guy in the office when you show up because it's like a corporate setting, but then you have all this awesome comedy background. I am, I am frequently the geekiest dude in the office, uh, which is those fine. are the people I gravitate to. The cool I, I see that I mean that is the coolest. <laughs> it's fine by me, believe me. Uh, I I just um, you know you just kind of show up and do your thing and don't 
uh, you know, because if you stay kind of quiet and, and occasionally appear to be brilliant, they, people tend to leave you alone, which is fantastic because you get so much more work done. <laughs> yeah, no, the extrovert in me needs to talk to every single person I work with 15 times a day. <laughs> That's right. So if you're trying to trying to always come off as being brilliant, people either get tired of you or they start to yeah. depend on you to always be brilliant. If you're only yep. <laughs> if you're only occasionally brilliant, they Keep go, the hey, you came up with another good one. Way to go. Keep it up. <laughs> That's pretty great. So I, I was like reading your website, which I don't know. It's the most up-to-date one, the, the Mark Hershon one. Dot com. Uh, the, yeah, you tell about branding. Um, and I can you kind of explain to people slash me? What, I mean, I have an idea what it is, but I get I have a feeling it's like one of those things that I take for granted and don't pay attention to, but a lot of work goes into. Yeah, I mean, there's there's branding and there's naming. Naming has to do with just giving something a, a name. Brand is the name and everything else around it. All of the messaging, all of the descriptors. Um, all of everything they say in a commercial, everything they say in advertising, uh, all that is all part of what a brand is, what it looks like, the design, uh, how it how it carries itself, how they you know promote themselves on social media. All of that re relates to a brand. Most of my work, at least for the majority of my career, has been coming up with the name part of it. Now I'm working with an agency where I'm doing a lot a lot more deeper branding work. But to me, the the fun part is always doing the naming part. Um, and uh, I've come up with, you know, or helped to come up with some really fun, memorable names over the years, which is just, it's kind of cool. It's like, you know, people like, as a performer, you kind of, hey, I see my name up in lights. But for me, it's kind of cool to go, hey, I just saw a commercial for something I named. That's fantastic. <laughs> that is, that's pretty cool. I, d I just think of the last, uh, the first season of Mad Men. That's kind of where I fell off. But like when, I don't know if you had watched, did yeah. you watch that show? Yeah. I feel like I was like, oh, yeah, there's a lot that goes into this stuff. Well, that's that's kind of where, I mean, branding is all around advertising, and that's kind of where the branding business started. Uh, clients would just ask the advertising agency, hey, we have this new product. Would you help us name it? And it became such a slog because naming is not as easy as it seems like it should be, sitting around in a room with a pizza and some beer. Um, there's a whole legal component to trademarks and all these other things that really makes, makes it a bit stickier than it would appear that these – you know, these companies that started doing brand names started to kind of flourish and it's become its own business in the meantime, which is great. But um, like I said, it's always uh, it's always fun. It's always challenging. And it's one of the jobs I, I tell people I work with. It's the only job I know that literally gets harder every year because more and more trademarks are getting registered, which means the chance of getting a, a name that's available becomes harder and harder. Yeah. Like when I watch a show like um, Silicon Valley? I don't know if you watch. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Oh, me, I'm so obsessed. But I even I was actually like watching it as uh, one of the interviews with uh, Mike Judge talk about how hard it was to come up with fake company names because everything's already owned or used. Every every iteration of every name with a little vowel is like, huh? I never even thought of that. And that opening scene has like <laughs> some real companies and a bunch of fake ones. Oh yeah, but the uh, there was an episode the first season where they had to. Uh, Richard had to go out to the, the valley and buy, oh, buy the Pied Piper. Piper name from some <laughs> farmer. Oh my God, that's God, that show's fucking brilliant. But that's what it's like. I mean, that is what branding is like. It's just crazy. And and having written those the screenplays I did for the Hallmark Channel, uh, I my screenplays probably were I don't know ninety to one hundred and twenty pages, and I would get eighty five pages of notes back from the legal team at Hallmark 
here are all the things you have to change in your script now. You can't name this character such and such because there's less than five people named that in the United States, and we leave ourselves open for a slander lawsuit in case they, yeah. they come back and say, hey, they're making fun of me. I never thought of that. So that's so you couldn't name a character, I don't know, Chris Revel, because there might be only 10 of us. That's right. So you got to go for more of Mike Smith. That's right. That's right. Oh, uh, yeah. I never weird. really thought about that stuff. Yeah, unless you can prove nobody has that name. Yeah. In which case you're okay. Um, and the same thing for brands. You know, you, you can, the, the way you can sometimes offset that, and this is a big uh, stumbling point amongst writers in Hollywood is product placement. Um, because product placement, they usually don't pay to be in a movie. They just, if you put them in a movie, they'll give you free product. Like one of the movies I did was called Monster Makers. It was a Halloween movie and we, we needed a minivan for this, for this movie, for this character to drive around in. And so the movie company made a, made a product placement deal with, I think it was Chrysler for a minivan. And, uh, you know, we didn't pay them and we didn't pay for the minivan, but they got their minivan in the movie for free. You know, so uh, a lot of writers don't want to be told, well, you've got to put a Chrysler minivan in your script. You know, they just want the thing to be, I want this thing to be a beat up Jeep. They go, well, we're not going to use a beat up Jeep. We got a free minivan from Chrysler. Yep. <laughs> Do you notice now on TV? Because I feel like I sometimes am watching shows that are not very shy about their product placement. Oh, you can always tell. If it's product, oh, it's, if, if it's it's product placement, you can see the badge on the car. You know what kind of car yep. it is. If, I even if, think Silicon Valley, I watched a recent episode too and it was like yep that's only because i think richard had to back up to go talk to uh yes to the ceo and like there was like a chevy something and it was my wife's like oh i think we should get one of those i'm like well that worked on you yeah and, that, <laughs> and, and because it makes it cheaper to produce because you're getting all this stuff for free you know the craft services they get all the coca-cola they need because you show somebody drinking a coke during the like, show yeah Yep. I'm drinking then, I'm drinking a Coke right now, as a matter of fact. If Coke I, wants to send us some stuff, we'll take it. Exactly. <laughs> I they um I think and sometimes it's annoying in, in TV. I like when it's I, I kinda like where it's going where there's like the more thought of being more integrated. Like a friend of mine works for this like startup and it's like the whole thing is you can like identify clothing or products people use in a TV show and then you they can tell you where to go buy them. Wow. And I I was like, Oh yeah, I guess. That's where we're at now. And I totally bought a couple T-shirts that I saw, like someone on the Flash wearing. I was like, "Oh, I want that." There you go. I'm surprised. So. I'm surprised hasn't somebody hasn't come up with an app like uh, what's the what's the music app that you can have it listen and it'll tell you what. It oh, is. Uh, SoundHound. There's guess, a few. I guess there's That's a couple. What I of, use. But I'm surprised they don't have one that you could point your 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 smartphone at the TV and just take a picture and it'll tell you where where to get the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're getting to that point where the TV just you hit pause and then it's 360. And you're on your Oculus Rift, and then you're like, I want that, that. And you're, like, walking through scenes to buy stuff. I go. imagine that that's what we're going to get to one day. So you're a fan of The Flash, are you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just uh, was watching – I just watched uh, the season, season two last night. Yeah, I guess we can't – it's too soon to spoil it because it just happened. And I know. People, oh, no, this um, – I can put this up whenever, so. No, no, no. I'm just saying it's just people – some people don't watch those things for weeks. Oh, what, what is the cutoff that's, point? That's, what is the I don't know. The spoiler cutoff point. For me, for usually I don't care. I mean, I'm, I'll give like a warning, but The Flash, this is the only show on television where I actually woke up at like 6.30 to watch it, <laughs> so I didn't have to get it ruined on the internet. I don't do that with anything else. Nice. And I didn't like grow up with the, like comic books, and really? I didn't really get... Yeah, I just, it was, I was more into comic cards, and I really liked the oh. animated stuff a lot. And then um, 
this my wife was watching Arrow on Netflix. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was. I just knew it was CW and a lot of good looking shirtless dudes. And, <laughs> but I walked in at the end of season one of Arrow where the glades crash. I'm like, oh my God, this is like some real shit. And yeah. then I've been hooked on everything since. There you go. Um, yeah, I uh, I was a fan of the original Flash show. And I was so, so tickled when they, they cast the guy who played the Flash as his dad. Oh, uh, John Wesley yes. Ship, I believe. Ship, yes. I, I've been learning, and I but, saw there's some more stuff. The I, woman from Mercury Labs, I guess, was in the original. Yes, yes. Was Mark Hamill also in an episode? Of the original one? I, he I may, thought that he, was why you know he was what? I, he, may have, he may have been. Yeah, because I read all that stuff online. I was yeah. like, oh, cool. Uh, do you like the new version of The Flash? Because I'm beyond I do, it. I do, I do, but i got to say, after watching the season finale episode, John Wesley Shipp shouldn't have tried to get back in a Flash costume. No, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I, I really actually had this theory that was Barry from a different timeline. I was like, oh, it's just that uh, guy. Yeah, but, there's there's some flimsy writing on that show. Um, but I'm such a big flat. I was I, of all the comic book characters, he was always one of my favorites. Um, even though all he can do is run fast, really. But um, yeah, he can do the cool lightning bolts. Oh, and, but he's got such heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah I'm, but there I'm is there, there are there are some logical boggles in, in in the CW shows that sort of leave me scratching my head. But I still watch them. And I'm, yeah, I think I'm a lot of people kind of say that. To, I'm curious to see what's going to happen when they bring Supergirl over in the fall. I you know I don't have cable, so I've never seen it because I don't have the stupid box for the TV. Yeah, well, and I've heard it's really good. No, no, it's not good. No, it's not good. I've is tried. I tried to watch. I watched it two times when it started, and I'm going, I know, no, why? It's CBS, and you're like, eh. well, exactly. And they then they did a crossover episode with the Flash, and I go, well, this has to be somewhat good, and it was just silly. Watch that get canceled. <laughs> um, no, but I think I think to get to the CW, I think you're going to see some sort of storyline. This is my guess. I've been arguing with a couple of people at work about this that they're going to do something because she, her the Earth she lives on is not the same Earth that the CW characters are on. Oh yeah, the, they have the multiverse thing. So right, I, so I, I have a feeling something's going to happen that's going to suddenly shift her city or something into the regular mm-hmm. universe because otherwise it's too much of a pain to try and get back and forth. You know, from the rumored internet is that they're doing Flashpoint Paradox. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that could do some stuff. I did watch. I did watch that animated uh, Flashpoint Paradox, I, which was. I watched that too. My one question wow. for you is: Is there anyone still listening to this show, show right now? Let's hope. <laughs> you, do you ever wonder that about your own podcast? You're like, how long Constant, do people stick around? But constantly. Then you get stuff on Twitter, and and people say something towards the end. I'm like, I have some extremely faithful listeners, which I'm very appreciative of, and I get new listeners all the time. But if you listen to any of the ends of my Succotash show, I usually make some sort of snarky comment about assuming everyone has already stopped listening by this point. Is- I've had to stop my self-deprecatingness of it because I don't think I'll, I'm not like a success by any means or I'm not a comedian. So I was like, well, I'm just going to be thankful anyone listen to this. I'm just your regular dude. <laughs> well, I always, I always close my show with I, I list you know, all these people that have been so nice to retweet the show. Uh, or mention me on Twitter, or mention me on Facebook, or whatever. Mention the show. So I do. The, I do this litany of their names uh, with like a musical background. I call it my celebration of thanks. And sometimes it's like three minutes of just reeling off these people's names. I can't imagine who, other than the people that might be mentioned there, 
bother to listen. It's and yes. that's like the end of the show. So it's like at the end I go, all right, if anyone's still listening, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for me, like if I'm in the car, I just don't turn something. I'm a completist. So I turn on a podcast and I have the time. I'm just I just go until it's over. Yeah, I sometimes will sneak. Well, also if you kind of autoplay to the next thing, then yep. you kind of go, well, I got to wait till they're done yapping or whatever they're going on. But yeah. I, oh. I sometimes will put stuff in at the very end just for the people that do stick around that I don't announce. Um, <laughs> like for an entire year, I did because the show's called Succotash. I did. I would find recipes for Succotash that people did on YouTube, and I would pull the soundtrack off, and I would just play them reciting their recipe for succotash after the the closing credits of the show oh that's pretty bad <laughs> and it was like i is anyone listening to this do i care i don't but it's just here for you and then i finally just ran out of them i literally did hundreds of them and i just there were no more left to do, so. <laughs> how did you find uh the world of podcasting i mean it's basically old-time radio i mean that's what I everyone well, yeah, which actually I was when I I mean, this goes back to the beginning when I was became a fan of KSFO when I was in junior high school. It was because this guy, Gene Nelson, who was on at night between 10 and 11, would play old radio shows. And then between 11 and 12, he would play comedy records. And so I would listen like to it. I had a, this was way back when I had a transistor radio with like a pillow speaker, which was a thing you could plug in and then slide it under your pillows. You could lie on it. Oh, wow. And listen to it. You wouldn't have like an earplug in your ear. Um, and I would listen to that every night. And, you know, everything in my life, everything is cyclical, cyclical, cyclical. Um, and so, you know, when I went to KSFO, one of my last jobs there was I was the executive producer, but I was also the producer of Gene Nelson's Mornings. He had moved to Mornings and I was his producer. And he was the guy that got me into radio. And then years later, now here I am doing a podcast, which, as you say, is very much like old radio. Um, and that's what I'm doing. I got into it because um, a bunch of comic friends of mine were doing it. This was, And I started Succotash five years ago. And um, I, for about a year, I was going, well, what do I want to do? Everyone's doing either an interview show or they're really smart and clever, like a Greg Proops or a Bill Burr, where they can just speak extemporaneously for an hour. Oh, God. Both of those dudes. Are you kidding me? Like, right. Amazing. Greg, Greg Proof, San Francisco guy. Yeah. Well, it was in, Loves the Bay. I was in an improv group with him as well. Oh, um, God. What a small world. That yeah, is so yeah. cool. And uh, and so I said, so what do I want to do? And I realized it seemed like podcasts were starting to kind of die. You know, they had started out kind of in 2005 or so when Ricky Gervais yep. was doing his. And it was sort of petering out. It was like, ah, it doesn't seem to really be catching on all that much. And I said, you know what? Nobody knows what's going on. They don't know how to get these things. They don't know what's out there. You can go to iTunes and kind of poke around, but it's impossible to really find out. So I said, I'm going to just start clipping shows and playing them. And for the first couple of shows, I, I, I emailed the comics. Most of them were friends of mine. I said, hey, can I play, you know, three minutes from your show or five minutes? They go, oh, yeah, okay. And then after that, I said, well, why am I even asking? I mean, I'm doing them all a favor. You're doing a huge favor. <laughs> and so I just started doing it. And, you know, we play six to seven to sometimes if if I have the, a great associate producer, this guy, Tyson Saner, and I'll go, hey, Tyson, I need six clips for this next show. And he'll just find six shows I've never heard of before, comedy shows. And he'll send me the clips and he sends me a write up with them about who's on it. And so I'll listen to the clip. I'll read his write up. Some, then I go to the website to try and find out more. And uh, I think it's a service that I, someone else is doing this now for, I think, the Gimlet Network. Someone's doing a show 
uh, that they're sampling podcasts, but it's not co just comedy. It's all sorts of stuff, which is fine. I mean, you know, I don't feel like I, I'm cornering the market on anything, just playing <laughs> clips of people's podcasts. The more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it's not like any network's ever going to pick me up. It's like, yeah, we want that guy that's playing other people's podcasts. What a great <laughs> idea. Um, so to me, it's just, it's really kind of a labor of love. I don't really have a sponsor other than Henderson's Pants, which is really just uh, commercials that I write, my announcer does. Um, and they're for goofy pairs of pants that don't exist. <laughs> uh, and, and then I go to the LA Podcast Festival every year. This year's the fifth one. And I go and I, I pay for a three-day three, three day pass, which is the, the festival's like a Friday through Sunday. And they have an area called the Podcast Lab where you can set up an interview people that are there and i just plant myself for three days i put up a succotash banner i plant myself on a corner of the room and i'm there the whole time and even the, the producers of the show came in last last week and they go or last year last fall and they said you know what this this festival wouldn't be the same if you weren't here every year sitting there interviewing everybody um so that was kind of flattering do you think la pod fest is worth going to like it sounds i listen to all of the live ones uh, I think it's great. Uh, you guys just finished the New York podcast out your way. Did you get a chance to go to that? No, I was at a wedding that weekend. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think it's, bummed. I don't know if it's worth coming to all the way from the East coast, but there's, oh, people, yeah, not for me. there's people that Basically. show up from England, but it's definitely worth at least dropping in if just for a day, if you're in the area or there's plenty of people that come out here for the thing. I mean, I've met a lot of podcasters that came in from the East coast, from the Midwest, from up Northwest. Uh, and it's great. If you love people like Mark Marin and all these great podcasts, they're all doing their shows live. Yeah. I think it'd be fun just to have, I've never been to LA and I have a good friend who lives out there. It's just like an excuse to go. Yeah. I would just use, see it all. I would use that excuse and do it. I mean, it's amazing. You can make some good contacts. There's, uh, well, there's people like Libsyn, uh, and people like SoundCloud. There was a guy from SoundCloud a couple of years ago and I was on SoundCloud, but they only gave for free. They only give you like a tiny bit of bandwidth you know, yeah. in storage space. Uh, but they were giving away like these giant hundred gig uh, pieces of, of real estate for free, just for saying, you know, trying them out. And I'm still getting that. It's like, okay, cool. That's um, so great. So I, you, I really love what the, what's happening with the industry. Like it did because I started listening to 05 and then I fizzled out and then came around and it really was, it was uh, Nerdist and WTF with Mark Marin were the two that my brother had turned me on to. Mm. And then went down a rabbit hole. And it took so long uh, to find – it was hard finding new shows. And it, it, so it's funny how it kind of comes full circle. For me, it was Split Sliders This Week in Podcast is how I found new podcasts for – Well, there you go. Three, four years. And then uh, the way – and then I'll be, thank you again. I probably should open that. Thank you for writing about me. That was <laughs> – like, and I, and I that was my number one goal from day one. I don't – not trying to get money out of anything. I'm just like – just really labor of love. And I was like, oh, my God. And well, I'll, tell, uh, well, I'll tell you, two, I'll tell you two things. To, to me, the reason I started uh, contributing to the Week in Comedy podcast on Splitzer was the editor at the time. There's been a couple of them since he left. Uh, but he approached me. And to me, it was like, hey, this is a this is a written version of what I'm doing, which is these exactly. little of shows. And there's a lot of the writers for that, that, that they just cover the popular shows. And, you know, you can read about uh wtf you know probably 18 times during the year yep. on there but i always try and find shows people aren't listening to like your show and the reason yeah. i found your show and this is a lesson for podcasters man because you sent in to the 
the email that they've got. Hey, I've yeah. got, you know, hey, if you know about a podcast or you are a podcaster, send in. And that when you send that email in, I, I don't know that this is made made public on the website because I can't remember what they said, but that goes to all of us that write for that column in addition to the editor. And they don't assign those out. We pick whatever shows we want to write about. Oh, okay. And so I got your thing and, and uh, I was interested because I'm a big Bill Burr fan. And I like F is for family. And I look back at your other stuff and I said, hey, this is kind of a milestone for Chris Rebel's show. He's got this it was. guy that's got <laughs> some chops, right? So I listened to the show and, you know, I think I gave you a fair shake in the review. You know, it's, oh, a, it's perfect. A, it's a down homey kind of show. I'm you literally know. in my bedroom as we speak right now. <laughs> it's not, it's, you know, it's no slick deal, which is great. And you got this guy from Hollywood to talk to you, which is also great. And I think you're on both sides of the equation, you getting the review and you getting uh, Mike Price on your show is a tribute to you, you know, reaching out and you know, having the tenacity to try and get this stuff. Um, and it's the way to do it because eventually, you know, hopefully there's no guarantees, of course, to any of this stuff, but hopefully you break through. I mean, I think I said to you in, uh, in one of our, our uh, DMs back and forth that nobody's reviewed my show yet for this is the week that was. And I've been writing for the damn thing for four years. <laughs> I'll start submitting you. I thought, week, I thought so. for sure when I had Dana Carvey on, somebody would go, hey, maybe we should write about Mark's show. No. It's not. hard to get written about. Yeah. I mean, you have to you have to ask for it. There's no other way around it. No one's going to find you unless you have Obama on yeah. your podcast. And then I came up with the, the repurposing thing that I do, which is I take my particular review and then I put it out the next day on Huffington Post. Um, you know, you know, um, you actually had written about, uh, I don't know if you remember the naked diner guys who sure. I got to know. And then, so I was talking to Jack. I was like, Oh my God, this guy wrote about both of us. He's like, yeah, it's going to be on HuffPo tomorrow. I was like, Oh wow. That's really cool. And I was like excited, but I was just really giddy about split cider because yeah. that was everything I cared about. And the reaction from people that don't know what split cider is to HuffPo was, it really opened my eyes. Like, Oh, uh -huh. it's like my my grandma knows what Huffington Post was when I was like, oh, I'm on Split Cider. Okay, sweetie, I'm happy for your what? Uh -huh. Oh, my God. Like my, my mom actually cried. It was, wow. It was very sweet. I, I wonderful. My parents are very nice. They've been on the show. And so it was like, oh, wow. People actually read this Huffington Post. I'm like, but guys, <laughs> Split Slider, this yeah. is everything. So it's funny. Everyone's goals are so different where the, the big goal should always be like the HuffPo or New York Times or the big ones. Right. For me, it was always straight and narrow split cider is all I've ever wanted. Well, that's all right. See, and then you got you got more out of that, so it pays. Yeah, off. that was a, a big bump in numbers. I'm not sure if you guys ever get to hear that either. Um, okay. I, yeah, I mean, you know, when I write about guys, I I don't make any bones about. It. I you know I tweet about the fact I did a review about them. I then yeah, you know, I'll at some point in the next you know few episodes, I'll clip your show and put it on Succotash, which will have the least amount oh, of, that'll have the least amount of response, believe me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I heard that Mike Price was also the nicest gentleman in the world. Yeah, no, he seemed, he seemed I just great. sat there in awe the entire time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, again, I mentioned my review. He just seemed like he was incredibly gracious and entertaining and had stories to spare and which is great. Uh, you get so used to some, you know, real trying to get somebody to t open up on a microphone, but podcasting has reached a point now and I got a part of it. I have to point to uh, Mark Maron getting Obama on the show. It was like this thing that suddenly people went, what, what is that? Suddenly my mom was going, how do I listen to your podcast again? I mean, she's never heard my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel a collective, uh, -ness, like, and I, like when Obama went on WTF, 
for some reason, I, I even felt that it was a success for me, for my little bedroom podcast. It's like, uh, it's almost like in the music scene when the, a band from your town makes it big. It might not really affect you, but somehow you feel connected to it. And you're like, yeah, we did this together because we've been listening to Marin for like five years. And I feel like I know Mark. I know I don't. I've never met him, never been in the same room with him. Well, like but I like listen to him speak like so many the, times. The old adage goes, you know, a rising tide, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, and I think something like the Obama thing did that for podcasting. Whether yeah. it did it for everybody's podcast, I mean, literally, I've been, I've been talking to this guy. There's a there's a new app coming out which I'm, I can't talk about because um, it hasn't hasn't been released yet. But I've been talking to the guy that came up with it, and it's an app aimed specifically at comedy podcasts, and it's going to be oh. amazing. Um, that's all I can say about it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be, it's a, it's an app that my mom will actually be able to find and listen to my podcast without actually having to work at it. Um, but anyway, I was talking to him and there are over, there are over 300,000 podcasts out there. Jesus. A hundred thousand of those are comedy podcasts. And yeah, some of them are only six episodes long and they're just lying in a heap by the side of the internet superhighway. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot of stuff for people to pick through, you know? Um, and so it takes a lot to kind of shine a light on anybody's podcast in particular. But I think when something like the Obama thing happens, all of a sudden people start looking around, they go, wait a minute, what, if he's going to be on a podcast, what the hell are these things? Yeah. And then, uh, I don't know. Do you know the famous story with cereal? Um, obviously it'd be being very popular, but the year before at SNL, they did a sketch that got cut with Ira Glass, uh, Fred Armisen as Ira Glass. Uh-huh. And it was got cut because Ira Glass isn't famous enough. A year <laughs> later, they end SNL with a serial parody. I love that. That scratch, too, is fantastic. Uh, there was a great T-shirt for sale at last year's uh, L.A. PodFest that said, uh, and I think Libsyn put it out, and it said, I was into podcasting before serial. <laughs> oh, and I, I absolutely love serial. I, I was a dick about it, didn't listen to the first season, and I finally went back and was like, this is this is this is great. Uh, this is everything it needs to be. Uh, I expanded my views of just l- stop listening to the comedy podcasts, and I've kind of gone all the way around. Yeah, I mean that's what you know. I it's funny how stuff morphs because my show is always clips and interviews, and then I realized my shows were getting to be like two two and a half hours long. <laughs> and uh, I, it wasn't that I bought, I cared as much for a listener. A listener will, you know, if they're enjoying the show, they'll listen to anything. But it was like, this is just painful to put together. I'm spending hours clipping podcasts and interviews and putting stuff together. So, so at the beginning of this last year, um, I decided to split my show into Succotash chats and Succotash clips. So generally you'll hear a clip show and you'll hear, you know, six, eight, maybe 10 clips, or you'll hear just an interview. And it just made it a lot cleaner for me to do. I think I don't know what the listeners think because they never tell me what they think, which is fine. No, it's a, it's a you got to pull people's teeth. And but I get it. I listen to a ton of podcasts, and I don't really tell people anything. It's it's a very isolating experience. You just kind of do it, and then you, I go on with my day. And once in a great while, a coworker will mention something to me that reference something. I'm like, oh, you've listened to that. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I mentioned personal. I mentioned I have a lot of regulars, and a lot of those regulars are podcasters themselves, and. It, um, it was a function of what was it? It was uh, the Stitcher Awards in San Francisco. And I was I got a ticket because the Stitcher people like me because I promote their podcasts. Um, so they got me a ticket to get in. And I knew Mark Mara was going to be there. And, I, and I, I tweeted out. I said, my goal for tonight will be to get my picture taken with Mark Mara. And so all these other podcasters started tweeting Mark Mara and say, hey, when you see Mark Hirsch on at the show, make sure you get your picture taken with. 
And so I approach him at the show and he says, oh, you're the asshole everybody keeps tweeting at me about. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so funny. I would think because of all your connections that Marin would not be as hard to, for you to get to, like your friends like Dana Carvey and stuff. No, I mean, I, I actually kind of know him because he started hanging out in the San Francisco comedy scene in kind of yeah. the late 80s. So yeah. our, our paths crossed a number of times, but uh, he, you know it's hard to remember people unless you really oh, worked, yeah. worked with them for a while or did something. Oh, absolutely. So we certainly have a thousand people in common, which is great. Um, so it so, wasn't like I was approaching him like some sort of stalker. Yeah. Like me, <laughs> <laughs> I don't stalk because that's not normal. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. And that, that's, that's what your that's what your stalking t-shirt should say. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't stalk. You. Yeah. <laughs> I don't stalk. And there is no candy in this van. <laughs> so I should do that. Um, Oh man, Mark, this has been uh, wonderful. Um, did anything we missed? Actually, yeah, I did want to ask you. I see that you're a uh, ordained minister as well. I am through the Universal Life Church. I've performed. A... I've performed seven weddings. That's so great. I think <laughs> that's how uh, my JOP was uh, online certification for, and it made it way more personal because I'm an atheist. Um, there you I'm, go. And I was like, well, I actually want to have a ceremony about. Well, being selfish about us and that about, <laughs> and it was it was great so i recommend to people if it's if you're uh not in the church world you can get married outside on the water like i did yeah, and just have a good friend it. have a good friend do it the or the ordainment doesn't cost anything although i paid a lot of money because i wanted the, the free holy water and the uh this book of of different things i actually could do supermarket commencement or uh uh, dedications and things now. now was this a passion or was like this a no 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 i did it. i did originally because a couple that were friends of mine wanted me to to marry them i didn't even have to do anything they'd written out the whole thing I, they just wanted me to be the officiant and since then i've come up with this whole kind of way to do a ceremony which works for me which is um i sit down with the bride and groom you know, we have dinner together. I write down a bunch of notes about how they met, even though I've only married friends of mine. But this, I find out all the sort of intimate details about, you know, what their family thought of, you know, the other person and all this stuff. And then the ceremony is basically I roast the groom and celebrate the bride. So I, <laughs> Yep, that's how it should be. Yeah, you get laughs, you get tears. And by the end, everybody goes, that was the best ceremony I've ever heard. Oh, that's and then that's I say, funny. well, listen to my podcast then. <laughs> is, that, is that the whole point? Do that to, pro to promote your podcast? Of course. You know, it, it's so funny. You know, we're talking about it's kind of slaving away at these things nobody cares about. I, I do this editorial cartoon for this weekly newspaper in Half Moon Bay, which is like 30 miles from here. And uh, I got into it because I was collaborating with a guy that lived in Half Moon Bay that I used to produce comedy shows with. And he ended up passing away. And I ended up continuing to do the cartoon on my own, even though I knew nothing about Half Moon Bay for a long time. Ended up marrying the, the publisher of the newspaper eventually, weirdly enough. Oh, that's so sweet. But anyway, so I've been doing it for literally like 16 years now. And I've won a couple of local, you know, California press awards for the cartoons. But pretty much it's like the podcast. I have no idea. The paper rarely gets any kind of letters to the editor. You know, the only time they do it's because people hate what I wrote uh, yep. or drew. Um, but the funniest thing is when I do run into people and they go, Hey, you're the artist for the Happen Bay Review cartoon. I go, Yeah, he's, and they go, Yeah, I've seen that cartoon. <laughs> yes. And, <You're> right. <laughs> yeah, I see it in there every week. Mm -hmm. Just <laughs> nothing. No, you like it. You hate it. it. Nothing. Just you've seen it. Thank you. <laughs> Like I'm aware it exists. Oh, I, I, God, that's another thing I skipped. That you're cartooning too. That's man. Do you sleep? Very little. 
It feels that way. Yeah. Were you? Are you a big Waterson fan as well? Uh, huge, huge. Yeah, that there's a that amazing book about an unauthorized biography called uh, "Looking for Calvin and Hobbes." Yes. If you're ever in the mood, yeah, I actually got to interview the author. One of the, another highlight of the oh, show. Did you see the documentary "Looking for Bill Waterson? Yes. Oh, gives me the feels every time. Yeah. I have a two-year-old nephew. I actually have a piece of Calvin and Hobbes fan art I bought on Etsy. Nice. And I am buying my nephew when he turns five, the complete collection of Calvin Hobbes. I was just looking at this. Uh, this artist came out with this thing following the uh, release of the new Star Wars movie where he took basically the Calvin and Hobbes style. Oh, I love that. The I've been Darth, I've been Darth and, and Darth and uh, is it Kylo? Kylo. Oh, it's, oh it's, perfect. it's beautiful. It's just perfect. It's a dead on great send up. Um, you know, another cartoon I used to love was um, The Far Side. Yes, yes, I threw that when I was Single younger. panel ones. And uh, Gary Larson, the artist, lived in Seattle when I was running the comedy club up there. And he used to come into the club. Oh, jeez. And the funny thing is, he was very quiet. He'd just kind of sit, watch the show, and then he'd leave. And the cycle for newspaper cartoons was like six to eight weeks. You know, you'd turn your stuff in in chunks. And then it eventually ran. And so sure enough, like, eight weeks after I'd seen him come in the club, there'd be this cartoon that would come out that there'd be a hint of somebody's bit in there that he kind of lifted. It wasn't like he stole the bit, but it clearly was an inspiration for one piece of cartoonery or another. It was very interesting. That is one of my favorite tidbits about uh, cartooning I've ever heard. <laughs> That's so amazing. Because, you, you know, like all these... It's funny because I, I always feel that like all these uh, different art forms are so separated, but it's kind of cool to see that Larson is like a comedy fan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it was That's very so cool great. to have him drop in. Did you get start like, – would you get like not get starstruck by comedians but then be like Gary Larson and be like, oh, my God? <laughs> um, I don't know. It's so funny. It's I guess maybe hanging around so many comics and living in L.A. for a long time, you just – you quickly get to realize that they're just kind of real people that just have a little extra glint on them. Yeah. You know, um, I remember one time I was having lunch with, with Dana Carvey uh, when he was living up here in Northern California, we were working on something and we went to a restaurant to get something for lunch and he always sits. So his back's to the room just because he doesn't like being bothered because he's incredibly recognizable. I mean, I've been in a theater with a movie theater at a matinee and he's wearing a baseball hat and there's seven people in the theater and it's pretty much pitch dark and somebody will go garth <laughs> oh god that's so awkward so we're in this restaurant and the waiter comes up and uh i'm looking at the menu and dana's looking at the menu and we're ordering our food i hear the waiter go hey i just saw you the other night at, at Cobb's comedy club and i look over at dana like oh here it comes and dana's looking at me and he goes he's looking at you and I look up at the waiter and goes, yeah, you were with that improv group at Cobbs the other night. You were, you guys were great. And he didn't, rec he didn't recognize Carvey at all. And he, <laughs> he turned away with the order and Carvey just looks at me and just kind of gives me this funny look and goes, interesting. <laughs> That's good ego check for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. It's been uh, a such a pleasure and yeah, my pleasure, um, Chris. where uh, where can people find you online and i'll put up an intro in the front and everything of course oh sure succotashshow.com is the best place to go markhershon.com you've inspired me to go go <laughs> finally figure out what my my password was for that website and go back and update <laughs> it 
Um, and then, of course, you can catch me every week in Splitsider.com, this week, the Week in Comedy podcast, and uh, Huffington Post Entertainment. Look for Podcast Review, and there you'll see uh, the review. So that's every Friday. I try and get that in every Friday. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you so much, and have a good rest of your evening. Chris, uh, you have a great evening as well, and uh, I'll let you know when we put a, a slice of uh, Let's Chat into Succotash. Oh, thank you. That's so great. And I loved your review of uh, This is Rad. I absolutely love that show as well. <laughs> okay, good, man. Thanks. And, I, um, and it's funny because I'm actually in the – Kyle is on his way to come out here as well. So it's like, oh, no, small world. Oh, very Podcasting's cool. a small world. Everyone slowly knows each other. Excellent. Well, Chris, thanks so much. Uh, enjoy uh, being on the show. You too. Uh, have a good rest of your evening. You too. Take care. In the future, humans create AI. Three days later, they have sex with it. Gigahose is a robot sex comedy with what's been called a South Park level of shock value. Creators Adam Lash and Kevin Gilligan take their concept in smart, surprising directions. It's been described as pure genius with a real clerks-like charm. Catch season one now at youtube.com slash gigahose.